So firstly, thanks to the organisers, to Nick and to Ilya for their kind invitation. I was given a, a simple brief. Um, could I offer something about Armenianness in the period between the Arab invasions and the 11th century? And could I do so in just 20 minutes? <laughs> so I'm going to try to speak to the first, and I'm going to try to keep to time in the second. So, of course, there are myriad ways in which we can consider pre-modern identities, and we've heard a number of approaches already today. Um, and I'm going to really be working on two principles. I know there are others, but the two principles that I've decided to select are the notion that identities are situational. Contextual is another very close uh, term. Um, they're specific to the time and the context in which they're constructed and deployed. And that means, of course, as we've heard regularly already today, they're subject to flux, to change, to alteration, uh, to development. Even while they appear uh, to be uh, stable, even rigid. And that's true of Armenianness. Armenianness holds multiple meanings. Um, it's contingent on the circumstances in which it's deployed. And secondly, I'm going to suggest that identities are oppositional very much along the boundary notion that we've just been introduced to and reminded of in the previous paper. That is to say that they're constructed in response to surrounding communities, be they political, religious, social, linguistic, or legal, or any combination thereof. They do not emerge from nowhere. Again, therefore, it's important to distinguish wherever possible the other against which the specific conception of Armenianness has been constructed. The other may take many different forms, uh, from intrusive hegemonic power to rival <coughs> noble family. But, but when the other is no longer other, the identity begins to collapse. And that really, in my view, is what happened to Armenianness in the 10th and 11th centuries. A number of the key components which had contributed to the construction of Armenian identity were displaced or tempered and that identity began to transform rapidly, quickly, and um, significant, very, very significantly. Now, one further preliminary observation. Um, the surviving historical and literary sources for this period um, were written by clerical authors and preserved overwhelmingly through monastic collections, the point that I made this morning. Um, both features have had a significant impact, I would suggest, on the character and profile of early medieval Armenian identity, limiting the range of recorded expressions of Armenianness. I suspect that what's being preserved, therefore, uh, the text that we can exploit and use, uh, constitutes a rather narrow selection. Um, but there are some surprising exceptions, and I'm going to introduce us to one or two briefly this afternoon. So I've divided the paper uh, into two sections, the Persian other and the Byzantine other, and I do so very conscious, very aware of the work of Professor Russell, uh, Professor Garstone and others who have really stressed the strong Iranian character of Armenian culture and society. And I in no way wish to disabuse your sense of that this afternoon. But what I'm thinking about is the, uh, the Persian other and the Byzantine other in opposition to Armenianness and what these um, relationships can tell us. One construction of Armenian identity which emerged at an early stage uh, was that of an imaginary community of Christian believers 
united in their confession of faith, recognising the leadership of one head of the church, the Catholicos, and devised in opposition, I would suggest, to an impious, ash-worshipping, Sasanian Shahanshah and the administration and, and, sorry, and the administrative and religious institutions of Iran. The importance of Maccabees in this construction of Armenian identity was recognised and commented on by uh, Professor Robert Thompson. And since I see he's not here today, I can say that it was exactly 40 years ago. <laughs> this notion of a beleaguered uh, but defiant people uh, preferring uh, martyrdom uh, to compromise has proved to be particularly potent for the construction of Armenian identity uh, through the ages. And it remains so uh, even today. The foundational battle of Avair in 451 was depicted uh, by uh, one Armenian historian, Khazar Papetsi, and reimagined by another, Yehishe, shortly afterwards, who offered a more focused study, intentionally, I would suggest, stripping away the long and fascinating narrative reporting later rebellion by Vahan Mamakonian and the reconciliation with Persia. Avariah was also commemorated liturgically and, as I mentioned, retained significant for, significance for Armenian communities throughout the world today. It was Yehishe's account which provided the template for later narratives recording or rather representing episodes of oppression and defeat. As Robert Thompson has also noted, at the start of the 10th century, another Armenian historian, Tovma Artsuni, based his description of the Caliph Jafar al-Mutavakil on Yehishe's description of the impious Shahanshah Yazdegerd II, just as his Bukha, the Turkic commander who campaigned across Armenia in the 850s, was modelled on Yehishe's Mir Merseh. And there are other parallels. A later narrative, involving negotiations and agreements between various Armenian princes and the Sajid, Emir Afshin, at the, end of the tenth, at the end of the 9th century, also owes much to Yeishe, with Afshin portrayed, portrayed as an evil-loving, peace-hating, insatiable uh, for human blood figure, plotting constantly, above all as one who has reintroduced Persian dominion. Here once again, Tovma is invoking the memory and inviting comparison with the villainous Yazdegerd II. Yet, I think I would like to stress that there are signs that our author, our Armenian author, Tovma, is anxious. He is aware that the prominent Armenian princes that he is describing, who sought to profit from relationship with the Sajids, were no longer performing, and could not even be represented as performing, the traditional roles expected of them. Certainly, Tovma has to work extremely hard, and not wholly convincingly, to explain their conduct commenting, willingly or unwillingly, they performed the things ordered of them. They went and returned one by one. He leaves it curiously but deliberately opaque. Are they unwilling or are they willing? It's not clear. But it's a later passage in that same text, the history of Tovma Artsruni, um, uh, in, in, in a passage composed by a later anonymous common continuator involving an Armenian prince, Gagik Artsruni, on the one hand, and one of the Sajid emirs, Yusuf, on the other, which I think reveals the otherness of the Persians and the fact that this otherness is fast receding at this date. On hearing of his reputation for bravery and intelligence, Yusuf invites the Armenian, Gagik, to his court, where he is deeply impressed by the latter's wisdom. 
they discuss profound and obscure questions, otherwise undefined, as well as various aspects of kingship, including practical solutions to present dilemmas and problems. They discuss knowledge of the past, uh, including past royal dynasties, the dimensions of their kingdoms. Gaggy is depicted as a young and handsome man, his outward appearance reflecting his inner virtues. Now this passage, as I would hope that some amongst this audience will agree with, strongly evokes the 10th century Persianate salon culture of the Majlis and even the Munazara, where the court was treated as the locus for intellectual debate and dialogue. Now it is very, very improbable that a Sajid would have sought to take any lessons on kingship from an Armenian, nor that an Armenian prince would have given them. But the story clearly held meaning for the author. Although this continuation is undated, its composition would seem to suit a time shortly after Gagit's death in 943, when memories of Gagit were strongest, and such a work would have held greatest significance. So even in the middle of the 10th century, the <coughs> recent past was capable of being refashioned. Now that the threat of Sajid depredations had disappeared, and even the memory of them was fading, the relationship between Yusuf and Gagik could be imagined in new ways, as equals, re respecting and learning from one another. Not only, would I suggest, does this indicate that Armenian historical writing, at least in Artsruni Vaspura Khan, was now in dialogue with contemporary Arabic and Persian literature and forms and modes of expression, it also suggests that a process of political and social transformation was underway, with traditional loyalties and identities breaking down. <clears throat> and although I do not have time uh, to explore it in this paper, the little-studded history of the anonymous storyteller, a work that I would want to date to the later 10th or early 11th centuries, deepens this sense of social and cultural engagement between local elites, Christian and Muslim, Armenian and Persian, and the collapse of the historic, literary, binary uh, categories. Now this work may be an imaginative blend of fictional characters and historical figures and their interactions. But as we all know, or I hope know and appreciate, even invented worlds reveal something of the context in which they were imagined. The episodes are set against the backdrop of eastern Vaspurakan, the districts of Her and Salmast and the city of Tabriz. This collection of entertaining stories is in no sense a work of religious history, and it's possible that sharp distinctions continue to be drawn uh, by contemporaries in those terms between different religious communities, although we don't find evidence for it, at least in this part of Armenia at this time. But to my mind, these interactions seem to be pointing to some kind of shift in the 10th century, as the paradigm supplied by Yeishe back in the 6th century, conceptualising Armenians and Persians in antithetical terms, no longer held meaning. The Byzantine other. Armenian identity was also constructed in opposition to that great imperial other to the West, in the form of the Byzantine Empire. Whatever contacts and exchanges there may have been, they barely feature in the historical record, at least in the Armenian historical record. Disdaining Byzantium, 
is a feature of several historical compositions in Armenian, including three I've included on the handout of Chevand, Tovma, and John Catholicos, or Hofhanes Tavaskanakertsi. Indeed, Chevand carefully reworked an earlier account of the Arab conquests to enable Byzantium to be humiliated <coughs> and then excluded at the earliest opportunity. I suspect that ecclesiastical and confessional tensions again underlie, <coughs> underlie these decisions, informing how the past was refashioned. The past, as we've already heard today, could even be forgotten if it proved too problematic. By way of illustration, over 30 documents describe the schism between the Armenian and the Georgian churches <coughs> in the first decade of the 7th century. A very deliberate, localised localized othering, I would suggest. But the decades after 632, when the monothelite formula held sway, are marked by virtual silence, suggesting somebody, at some point, found these too problematic and filleted the records. But again, <clears throat> moving forward, I would suggest this state of affairs changed as Byzantium pushed east in the course of the 10th century, and it became impossible to simply ignore. Two compositions from the end from the second half of the 10th century articulate something of the changed circumstances and new possibilities. Of the earlier work, the history of Taron, offers a highly creative <coughs> uh, retelling of the conversion narrative. <coughs> at the start of the 4th century, in which the previously unattested monastery of Glak at Inaknean Inaknean is suddenly given centre stage, undermining the primacy of the traditional centre of Christian practice and worship in the district of Taron at Ashtishat. Relationship with the Sea of Caesarea in Cappadocia, in other words within the Byzantine Empire, is, is also asserted in several ways, both prefiguring and legitimising the actual relationship with the imperial church at the end of the 10th century. As Avdoyan has argued, this is the earliest work we have of institutional history in Armenian to survive. That such a new form of historical writing should be produced in a district which had been annexed by Byzantium is not, I would suggest, coincidental. <coughs> such a work runs against the grain of Armenian religious identity, focused as it is traditionally on priority, on exclusivity and on independence. Of the second work, The History of Uktanes, I would simply note its renewed interest in the classical Roman past and Armenian involvement in it. There's a, re, there's a new interest in thinking through how Romans and Armenians related in the classical era. And I would suggest it's not accidental that this occurs at the very moment when Byzantium is pushing eastwards. But I will pass to my final text, the history, the universal history of Stephanos Teranetsi, completed in 1004. For it is through this work that we see most clearly the radical reshaping of the political and religious landscape of Armenia by Byzantium and the challenges which this presented to Armenian identity. The elite, the Armenian elite, progressively exchanged their ancestral lands for estates and imperial titles in the Byzantine Empire, enabling districts of Armenia 
to be reordered uh, within the Byzantine administrative structure. We can discuss what this actually entailed later. The network of Armenian bishops withered and was replaced by a new imperial episcopal hierarchy. In these circumstances, Stepan searched for other means of projecting and preserving an Armenian identity, and I would suggest he did this in three ways. And what's intriguing is actually to see that a number of these themes have already been talked about today. Firstly, he inserted Armenian tradition into universal history. Armenian history is credited as existing, as being identifiable from the very earliest period. It's associated with the production of Eusebius's um, Chronographia. Armenian tradition is therefore located in antique, in ancient time, very, very deliberately. And it, I would suggest this affords Armenianness an equality with Persian or Roman history. But there is a loss that this entails. It is at the expense uh, and through <coughs> the removal of much of the complex and contested quality and character to Armenian history. So we get Armenian history inserted into world history, but we lose a lot of its contested quality. It is effectively simplified. Again, is this a process that you are familiar with in your traditions? Preservation, but at a cost. We have from now on a simpler story of the Armenian past. Secondly, Stepanos promoted the achievements of a large company of Armenian saints and scholars, establishing a new sacred landscape consisting of monastic communities. Um, I would suggest this allowed for the preservation these, through these decentralised structures, uh, these decentralised communities, this allowed for the preservation of an Armenian uh, identity. Uh, not only do monastic communities have the means for generation of and, uh, and, and the production of manuscripts and of texts, they also have this cherishing function that I mentioned earlier, this intense conservatism when it comes to the preservation of their own particular tradition, however problematic that might be. And these traditions are preserved, of course, in Armenian. And thirdly, Stepanos limited what he understood Armenia to comprise. I would suggest he consciously excluded the southern kingdom of Vaspurakan, as well as the highland world of Sunik. They simply do not feature <coughs> in the last century of the text. Now, why did he do this? Because several dimensions of Armenian identity, the noble elite, the legal culture, which I haven't spoken about at all, religious practice, which I've said nothing about, these are in the process of being displaced and assimilated as the otherness of Byzantium dissipated. And as the otherness of Byzantium dissipated, Armenian identity began to collapse. Persecution by Persians and others may have brought about apostasy and martyrdom, but it also sharpened religious difference. It was assimilation with Byzantium <coughs> which threatened the idea of Armenianness. Uh, and I would suggest that it was eventually thwarted not by any initiative uh, from within, but rather the arrival of the Seljuks and the permanent exclusion of Byzantium from the east. The last dimension I'd like to touch on before I close is what replaced, what, what does the 11th century then look like? 
uh, in the Armenian historical tradition. And I would suggest that it is configured very, very differently. Now, I'm very conscious that somebody here will be working on the very text that I'm about to mention, the history of Aristarchus. But in my view, this history is conceptualised in an entirely different way. It is interested in the fates of urban communities. Armenian society and culture as an urban phenomenon is not something we experience in the 10th century or certainly before the 10th century. Identification with belonging to a particular urban community is not something we see in Armenian tradition before the 11th century. And you suddenly start finding individuals who identify themselves with particular cities. Now, this is very familiar in the Arabic world. It's very familiar in the Persian world. This is not familiar, I would suggest, in the Armenian world. So we find our, uh, the fates of Armenian communities. Admittedly, Aristarchus comprises a series of laments on their fates at the hands of the Seljuks. But even the conceptualization of Armenianness in this manner is different. It's radically different. The elite are gone. The church is transformed. The monastic communities have survived, but largely outside the urban fabric. And it's the urban communities which suddenly emerge. That they don't then continue, that there is a revival of a, a more traditional form of Armenian identity, is, to my mind, the product of the Seljuk invasions and the Battle of Manzikert. So extraordinarily, from an Armenian perspective, Manzikert has a transformative but rather positive effect. It ensures the survival, at least the permanence, of an Armenian presence and identity in this part of the world. Thank you very much indeed.